In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. This is the sixth Sunday after Pentecost, and we are continuing in Luke's Gospel in chapter 10. Indeed, the passage that we read today is at the very end of chapter 10. It concludes that chapter. And we see uh, an aspect of hospitality in this a lesson about Mary and Martha welcoming Jesus into their home. For us to understand hospitality, for us to have a, a basis for uh, understanding what hospitality means, it's important for us to go all the way back to Genesis, to the first book of the Bible, and to the story that we have today about Abraham in chapter 18 of Genesis. Abraham's encounter with the Lord here is a foundational way for us to understand what hospitality is. And indeed, we see uh, an example here in many ways of hospitality as it's generally understood in the ancient world of the Near East. We see Abraham doing things that we would expect a man of his position to do. We see him offering basic hospitality to someone who is coming to his home, whom he sees near his home. It's a foundational in the Near East to welcome somebody and to provide some sustenance for them, to give them some water to wash their feet, uh, to give them some food to eat uh, so that they're nourished uh, to go on their journey. And indeed, we uh, know that uh, that kind of hospitality is expected in the Gospels as we see Jesus um, talk about it many times. So uh, we see uh, Abraham um, offering this hospitality, and we see the difference between Abraham and Sarah. Sarah is staying in the home, and she's behind the curtain in the home as she offers and prepares uh, this food. And so uh, she is not out meeting the Lord, meeting these uh, male travelers. Uh, she's staying behind the curtain. And this is another aspect that we would expect in the ancient Near East, that men and women would be separate, uh, that the women would meet separately, uh, that they would be preparing the meal, but that when the men sat down to talk and discuss, they would do it in a separate uh, place. And so uh, these are aspects of the hospitality that, that we expect. The things that we don't expect start with Abraham and his energy, with his running and with his uh, quick movements. Abraham is an elderly man, and for an elderly man in the ancient Near East, they would never run. It would be a, side, uh, a sign of their disrespect to their own station in life for them to run. And more than that, Abraham isn't just an elderly man, but he's a man of station. He's a prince. And for a prince to run in front of other people uh, would be important. It would be embarrassing or humiliating for him. Sometimes we think about Abraham and Sarah as these kind of wandering, isolated travelers, alone and maybe uh, even impoverished. Uh, you know, when we think about the pictures of them in children's Bibles or on felt boards, you know, we see Abraham pulling the, the camel and Sarah sitting upon it. But indeed, we read several places that Abraham is a prince, that he has an army that he gathers, that he has hundreds of men at his disposal that are strictly fighting men. So for him to be able to maintain an army shows great wealth. He has hundreds if not thousands of slaves that serve him and his family and that care for his immense portion of cattle. He has thousands of heads of cattle of all different kinds. We also read that he has gold and that he has jewels. He's a prince who is traveling with immense wealth. And so for a man of his station and for his age to run again would be humiliating and we should be surprised by that. 
not only does Abraham run, but he moves uh, quickly. And he has the young men prepare the meal, and he quickly advises Sarah to provide the meal. So there is um, great speed in which um, he does all this, and an urgency that we see that is characteristic of faith. Abraham is the father of faith, and all that Abraham does is exemplary to us and what we mean by faith. When we see uh, the meaning of faith, we have to understand a certain urgency in it. Abraham sees the Lord, and his response to the Lord is done with urgency. You'll remember that when he offers Isaac, when the Lord tells him to offer Isaac, he gets up early in the morning, right? And he goes to offer Isaac. So when we talk about faith, when we talk about hearing the Lord's will and doing it, a sense of urgency and of moving quickly has to be an aspect of that faith. When we see him meeting with the Lord, there's uh, something else that really is important. And that is that we see here uh, a very foundational understanding of God as three in one. We see the Holy Trinity here exemplified in Genesis chapter 18. There have been some um, throughout Christian history that have uh, mistakenly said that there is the Old Testament, which is uh, monotheistic strictly, and that the New Testament and the understanding of Jesus is some kind of a new understanding, uh, a change in what was taught in the Old Testament, and this is simply not the case. From Genesis 1, we see God referred to himself as plural, as three in one. And here we see three men who come to Abraham, but Abraham referring to them or responding to them as one, saying uh, in the singular, Lord, one Lord. One way for us to understand this is in our iconography. The ancient icon that we use to explain to us the Holy Trinity is uh, from this passage in Genesis. What we see here are the three men, these three angels who have gathered and who are seated at the table with Abraham. So you'll see the table before them with in their place. And then we have uh, the three who are seated around the table. The first in the middle is uh, God the Father, because he is the fount of the Holy Trinity. Then we see the flowering bush, uh, the, the Holy Spirit. And we talk about in Pentecost, we talk about this greening or this flowering. And we decorate the church with greenery uh, to understand this, uh, this outflowing, this movement of power and of, of beauty and strength from the Holy Spirit. And then we see the rock uh, who is Christ, the, the rock upon whom uh, the church is built and the foundation, the chief cornerstone of the temple. And so we see the Holy Trinity uh, figured for us in this beautiful icon, a way for us to think about how God is three and yet one. So that is uh, another kind of radical understanding, a foundational understanding for God as being three and one. Another interesting note here is that uh, they're entering into a contract. You'll remember that the Lord has uh, told Abraham several times that he's going to be the father of a great nation and that he's going to um, have uh, offspring that are as numerous as the stars in the sky. And uh, first, Abraham doesn't understand this. Where is this uh, family going to come from? Is it going to be my, uh, my servant in my house, Eleazar? Is it going to be a child that comes from one of my serving women because uh, Sarah is too old. The idea of Sarah having a child just um, was too far from their minds and understanding. The Lord continues to go to Abraham and he has this unfolding of revelation, this unfolding of revelation to Abraham, which is so important for us. This is a benefit that we have of hospitality, a benefit that we have of 
um, welcoming the Lord into our lives is that he continues to more and more reveal himself and to reveal his purposes. So now he's come and he's saying, not only am I going to give you offspring, but this offspring is going to come uh, from Sarah. And Sarah's response, which seems like a visceral, just natural response to this miracle, is to laugh. Who wouldn't laugh at something like that? She's a woman in her 80s. This is uh, shocking, right? It, it seems preposterous to her. And so she laughs. And indeed, this is the name of Isaac, he who laughs, to show this miraculousness and the wonder of the gifts of God. And so uh, this is a, a further perpetuating of the contract. And we see in the ancient Near East several ways in which a contract is made. We'll see two men who meet in the gates of a city or outside that are going to agree on the, on the purchase of property or on a marriage or something. We'll see them shaking hands or holding hands until the contract is complete. Sometimes they might take a shoe off and, and hold that as a way of saying we're not going anywhere until this deal is settled. I'm not letting go of you until this contract is complete. So uh, there's this understanding of a contract, but what Abraham is offering is a, a banquet feast. Uh, he's offering more than just a simple hospitality. He's offering a banquet to the Lord. And this banquet, this feast that's above and beyond all proportion of simple hospitality is a sign that a contract is being agreed upon. This banquet feast is a celebration. It's a celebration of the promise that the Lord has made to Abraham and that he is going to fulfill in the birth of Isaac. And he says, I will come again to you and this contract will be fulfilled. Very little has changed in these 2,000 years between Abraham and the time of Jesus when it comes to our understanding of hospitality in the ancient Near East and what we would expect. Mary and Martha are uh, essential members of this inner circle of Jesus. They're close friends with him and they provide a safe base for which Jesus moves in and out of Jerusalem. Not mentioned here in Luke chapter 10, but that we see in other parts of the Gospels, is that they live in Bethany, which is only about two miles from Jerusalem. And so when Jesus goes there, he goes and he stays there many times, and he goes back and forth between their home and Jerusalem. And they offer him this important hospitality from which Jesus and his apostles are able to come and go. You'll remember that they're the sisters of Lazarus, whom Jesus rises from the dead. And you'll remember that they have this uh, such deep relationship with the Lord that they send for him. When Lazarus becomes sick, he's away from them and they, they send messenger, Lord, come and, and come back to us. And so they have this kind of um, intimate relationship and this expectation of his grace and the mercy that he will show to them. So they have this uh, very important uh, relationship. Uh, Martha invites him. We see her as being the, the chief of the household, and she invites him in for this important hospitality. And then while Martha is preparing the food, which we expect, we see Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, which we should be shocked by. Again, at this time, we would expect that men and women would be separate, that Mary would be in the kitchen helping uh, Martha prepare, and yet here she is sitting at the feet of Jesus and teaching. We have many documents around this time where a rabbi of this age would say uh, that nobody should be teaching women, that they shouldn't be a part of that learning community. And this is a change uh, in, in the way that we understand uh, people coming in faith and the relationship of that faith covenant. Before there was circumcision, and the circumcision was uh, the foundational right in which a family would come into fellowship with God, but the women would all be associated or come into faith through the man. 
See, the man would be circumcised, and then the women that were in his household would receive uh, that covenant with God by virtue of the man's circumcision, right? And so uh, there was no way for a woman on her own to come into that relationship apart from being in relationship with the man. And here we see where Mary is being open to baptism, which is the only right in the Christian church to come into this relationship with God. And we know in the, the Gospels that when somebody is baptized, then they must be taught. This is what Jesus teaches in the Great Commission, right? Go into all the world and baptize and teach, right? And so those that are baptized have to be taught. So Mary is being welcomed into the kingdom of God as an individual, as a singular person, by virtue of her relationship with Jesus. There is no man that is going to play um, a part in her salvation. It is her and Jesus who are forming this uh, relationship of uh, covenants and salvation. And it's not uh, that, that Martha is trying to separate Mary uh, from this relationship. Often when we read and we talk about this, Mary and Martha are put at at odds with one another, and I don't think that we have to do that. Uh, Jesus singles out for us what it is uh, that Martha is having difficulty with. He names it for us very clearly. He says to her, Martha, you're distracted, and you're anxious, and you're troubled. So he's saying, your problem isn't with your sister or with me. Your problem is that you're distracted, that you're anxious, and that you're troubled. Boy, can I relate. I was sharing with David the other day that last Sunday he had taken the coffee pot back into the sacristy back here to wash it and we had a short conversation about his family and I was really trying to focus on what he was saying about his family and over uh, his one shoulder I saw an alb, one of these albs hanging up back there and I thought, oh that needs to be put away. That needs to be put back or else it's going to get dusty. I was distracted. I much rather would have been focused upon David and his family, right? But this is what happens to us, right? We get anxious, we get troubled, and we get distracted. And this keeps us from the hospitality, that is the welcoming of the Lord into our lives, and the covenant relationship with Him, and the blessings that come out of that relationship. We're not able to sit at His feet and to learn and to offer proper hospitality to the Lord in our lives when we're anxious and troubled and distracted. And these are named for us because we have to be aware of it. We have to be aware that this is our temptation. We have to be aware that this is our trouble. And we're going to have to take steps. We're going to have to take steps with the Lord to participate in the right ordering of our minds and our lives so that we can more and more be focused and be diligent the way that we see Abraham focused and diligent upon the Lord, the way that we see Mary sitting his, at his feet and focused upon the Lord. And part of the way that we understand that, part of the way that we come into a deeper understanding of that is explained for us by St. Paul in his letter to the Colossians. In chapter 1, he starts out talking to the people of Colossae about the condition that they were in before they offered this hospitality of fellowship to the Lord and to his gospel. This is the condition that they were found in. He says that your minds were alienated and hostile and that you were doing evil deeds. Do you see the relationship there? A mind that's hostile and alienated and that it leads to evil actions. 
And this alienation and hostility we can think of as being related to being distracted and troubled and anxious, right? It brings about deeds that are alien to God, that are not deeds of faith, that are deeds of distraction, that are deeds of, of worry, right? Deeds of thinking that there's not enough and we're going to have to do it apart from the Lord. And so he says the remedy for this, the remedy to the alienation and the hostility of mind to these evil deeds is Christ's reconciliation of us. What does he mean by reconciliation? When a bookkeeper reconciles the books, right, they make sure that the debits and the credits match and so that there is a, 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 a zero at the end of the column so that there's agreement uh, between all those books and so that all of the bills are paid in full, right? This is what Jesus wants to do for us. He wants to say, okay, here's all the debts, here's all the distractedness, the worry, the anxiety, the alienation of mind, the hostility of, of attitude, and I'm going to rightly order you, I'm going to give you debits of grace and of mercy so that you can come out paid in full so that you can be holy and blameless. Which to me, when we hear that, holy and blameless, often our response to that is like Sarah's, right? Ha! Me? Blameless? I don't know about that. It seems outrageous, doesn't it? And it is for us. We cannot make ourselves blameless. It's Christ in us. It's Christ working in us, right? He is the one. He says He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless. And then we get this wonderful theological word that we've heard before, this very technical word. You all maybe have remembered it. This word, if. Right? You're going to be made holy and blameless if you continue in the faith and hope of the gospel. So we've talked about it. What does that mean, to continue in the faith? To continue in the faith is to provide the hospitality of Abraham to the Lord. To welcome him into our lives. To welcome him into our tent. To welcome him into our place of dwelling. To provide a place for him. To give of ourselves and to give of the goodness of our homes. To say, Lord, what I have is before you and I stand before you to serve you. It's that urgency of welcoming the Lord in. This is faith, right? Seeing the Lord and responding. Seeing the Lord and responding. That we respond to the Lord. That with urgency we welcome him into our lives. And that is matched with hope. Hope is a desire to see the things of God. The things that we hope for, the things that we're yearning for, the things that we're thinking about, the things that come to my mind and I say, oh, I really look forward to doing this and I really look forward to that happening. I'm really hoping that this will happen. There's an urgency, there's a, there's a desire, a hungering and a thirst within our very beings, our very souls and minds for the things of God. And the hope that we have specifically is in the resurrection. Our hope is in the resurrection of the Lord. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. And our hope is that we too will be resurrected with Him. That we too will have resurrected bodies at the end of the age. That the kingdom of God will come and that we too will join Him in the life of the resurrection. That is the hope that we look to. That is what we're focused on. It's not material possessions. It's not physical safety. It's not careers or, or even longevity. Right? These are not our hopes. Our hopes are in the resurrection of the Lord. So when we have faith, we respond to the Lord and we yearn and desire for the things of the Lord. Then we're ready for the third of those most Christian of virtues. We talked before last week, right, about the three key Christian virtues. Faith, hope, and love. 
faith, hope, and love. And love is described for us here, if not named. He says in verse 24, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. We're all doing that, right? Rejoicing in our sufferings? Yes. <laughs> for the sake of those that we love? But we do, don't we? We do rejoice for the opportunity to take a loved one to the hospital, to feed an elderly member, to lift up a baby in distress, to comfort those who mourn. Don't we rejoice at those opportunities? Those moments in our life when we get an opportunity to show that I love you enough to give up my things to do what you need? We do rejoice in our sufferings, and that is the definition of love. And so with faith we look for the Lord, in hope we expect and yearn for Him, and in love we rejoice in our opportunities to suffer for those that are in need. And then he describes in this really radical way that intertwining the intertwining of Christ in us he even is so bold to say St. Paul is so bold to say in 24 that he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body the church and you might say what could be lacking in Christ and yet he calls us to participate in his sufferings doesn't he? He calls us to take up our own cry cross to participate in the life of the church and to lay down our lives for each other. And so he says that we are called to make the Word of God fully known, the mystery of Christ that's revealed to the saints. He says this mystery is Christ in you. This is the whole mystery of the Christian church. This is the whole unknown. This is all that we have. The mystery of Christ dwelling with us. And we will spend eternity and in coming into a deeper knowledge of Christ and the Holy Spirit for all time because we will never come to the end of Him and His beauty. And finally, he says, For this I toil, struggling with all His energy. Do you see that? I'm struggling and toiling with His energy. It's not me alone who does it. It's Christ within me in participation. I struggle with His energy that He powerfully works in me. Do you see that abiding, that intertwining, that participation of salvation that the Lord calls us into? This is radical hospitality. This is God coming to Abraham and saying, I'm going to make myself known through you and through your child. This is Jesus coming to Mary and Martha and saying, I'm going to teach you and have fellowship with you. This is the call to each of us to be on the lookout for Christ. To be on the lookout like Abraham, to be standing and looking to see where is God entering into my life? Where is He coming in? Where can I invite Him in? To be like Martha and saying, come into my home. Come into my home and let me feed you and let me wash your feet. There are so many opportunities that we have that we miss if you're like me. To invite the Lord in, to show hospitality, to sit with Him and to eat with Him, to listen to Him that He might graciously bless us in our lives and in our homes and in our relationships, in our church and in our community. May we show hospitality to the Lord that He may bring through His power, faith, hope, and love 
for the transformation of our hearts and of our lives, of our families, and of the whole world. Amen. Amen.